Turn, please, to uh, Philippians in chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, I want to read just verses 1 through 3. Philippians chapter 4, 1 through 3. Having found that, please, please pray with me. Father, now we come to your word and I pray that you would help us open our eyes to see, open our hearts uh, to receive the truth, Father, that we may walk in it. Uh, we give you thanks for all your wisdom and most certainly for your grace to empower us to live it out. And so we pray that you would give all of that even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia and Suntaki, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, this passage, you have to excuse me because I'm missing Philippians. There we go. Thank you. Knew those pages didn't go together. Um, but this particular passage is a very personal one, obviously, so personal that Paul actually mentions two people. I've often thought if Paul ever came to my town, I wouldn't want him to get to know my name. Um, but it's a very personal passage as he comes and writes. And so we have to sort of look over their shoulders and, and dig a bit and say, what's here for us? What, what, what can we learn from this particular passage what is here uh, to really to really help us obviously there are two women in the church in Philippi are having some difficulties there's some disagreement it, uh, Paul doesn't lay out the nature of the disagreement it doesn't seem to be doctrinal in the sense that there's something actually heretical going on you would get the sense that if that were the case he'd correct it right there he'd saying this is the, this is the issue it seems more uh, to be some nature of dispute uh, between them uh, he tells them that they're to uh, have the same mind, or as he says, agree in the Lord, which is the same expression we have over in chapter 2 when he says that we're to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. We're to be of the same mind. And, and that mind isn't that we know everything, but that mind is the mind or the attitude of humility, the mind of Christ, the attitude of humility that enables him to sacrifice, to give up his rights which was his right to glory, remain God, but yet take on humanity and serve. And so when Paul speaks to us of having this mind, this same mind, he's telling us that it's not the fact that we know everything down to the very nth degree as Christ does in that having the mind of Christ, but having the mind of Christ so that we have the same attitude as Christ of humility, of self-sacrificing love for others, to give up our own rights so that we may love another and so he's calling these women to be of the same mind so you get the sense that the nature of this difficulty this disagreement is more over that than a doctrinal issue more over this notion of my ministry is better than your ministry my ministry is more important than your ministry I'm more important than you and that kind of thing each having their own agenda wanting to pursue it and Paul's now singling all this out and saying uh, agree together in the Lord. But you wonder why 
he's going to such lengths to deal with this particular issue between these two particular women. It doesn't seem to be punitive, that is to say, he doesn't seem to be, to be saying this so that he'll embarrass them into correction, or even, even that he's correcting them per se through this because he's calling on others in the community to come to them. He himself isn't disciplining them. He's calling on, uh, you'll notice here in um, verse 3, he says, yes, I ask you also, in the version that I have of the English Standard Version, true companion, some of you have the NIV, which calls this one uh, his yoke fellow, which may, by the way, be a play on an actual name of someone. There might be a guy there whose name is Yoke Fellow. That is also a proper name uh, in the days of Paul with a little spin, same word family. It's just a difficult thing to, to, to translate. But Paul obviously has a particular person in mind who is one that has labored with Paul, that Paul trusts, and he calls to him his Yoke Fellow, his true companion, his worker in the Lord, together linked, yoked together. So he trusts this person. So he's saying, I want you to come alongside them uh, and, and help them. It's that important. We've got to clear this up. It's that important. These are two important people in the church, two important women in the church. They've labored with me. Obviously, the church knows about the situation. It's well known. And so he's saying to this one, this one he trusts, go to them, work this out, get them to agree, bring them to agreement and the Lord, he pleads then also with each one of these women individually. He says, I entreat you, Odi, I entreat uh, Suntiki to agree in the Lord. Each one of you think about this and really he pleads with them. And so we wonder, why is Paul all exercised about this particular thing? Why is he using up scarce writing materials on this particular uh, situation? Well, let's dig a little bit more. You'll notice all the way back in chapter 1, in verse 27, Paul really begins this exhortation. And this, these few verses, really, I would suggest, are the end of that exhortation, the application of it. He starts, for instance, in verse 27 of chapter 1. You remember, we were there just months ago, and he said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And so Paul started this whole section talking about their walk in the Lord, their citizenship, as we mentioned, how they conduct themselves and that they were to strive side by side together, one mind um, for the faith of the gospel. And you'll notice all the way then, Last week, chapter 3, verse 20, he says a similar thing. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. That is, that's where we get our way of life from, this citizenship that's in heaven. And then here in chapter 4, verse 1, he tells them to stand firm, as he told them to stand firm in verse 27. Uh, he speaks in verse 3 uh, of chapter 4 of laboring side by side or striving together. And then his great emphasis on being of one mind. So what I think we have here is the application, a personal application, an application in the life of the church of Philippi of all that Paul has been building since the middle, uh, towards the end of chapter 1. He gave them all the theology of it, and now he's saying this is how this is going to be worked out in the life of the church. He says, I want you to be of one mind. 
I want you to live worthy of the gospel. I want you to conduct yourself in a particular way. I want you to, to, to labor side by side, strive side by strive, side by side, one spirit, one mind, all for the faith, all for the faith of the gospel. And so, so really now he just comes to apply all of this, which tells us first this, that all of this theology that we've had since the middle of chapter 1 is to lead to a certain practice, a certain way of life. We often say that, doxo- that, that theology leads to doxology, that what we believe should lead us to worship. Theology leads to doxology. But it's also true that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, that is, that right thinking leads to a right way of living. All right? Orthodoxy, orthopractice, right way of living. And so he's saying, listen, here I'm giving you the theology of who Christ is and what he's done, and now I want you to live that out, and so here's a practical application of that. There happens to be a situation right in the midst of you that needs to, this, for which this needs to be applied. All that I've been telling you about Christ and his mind and how that's to live out and how you're to live that out uh, in the context of the life of your particular church. And so now he comes to apply that. I remember when I was a kid in elementary school, I could often get the answers to math problems, arithmetic problems, without using the method that the teacher had given us. That's sort of been the story of my life. It's called sin. But, uh, and my teachers were never satisfied with that because they knew that maybe I could come up with the answer to that, but if I didn't do it the right way, if I didn't follow the right method, if I didn't follow through on the right way of thinking, then it wouldn't bode well for future problems. And that's the way Paul is. He's saying, listen, uh, sometimes you can get it right, but the point is to get it right the right way. You've got to be thinking correctly about your life. The theology has to be right. And then out of that comes the right practice. You may instinctively, perhaps from time to time, know the right thing to do, but that's not enough. And so Paul was saying, I want these women to agree, not just agree, but to agree in the Lord, to be of the same mind in the Lord. There's a right way to do this. And so he's calling them now to that. And you see, because when we agree in the Lord, we realize that he in fact is the Lord and we are not. And so we submit to him and what's important to him. And as we've been reading through this letter to the Philippians, what we find is important to the apostle, thus important to Christ, is the gospel. That that we have to make sure the way we live our lives does not disparage the gospel. In fact, it presents it. We're to adorn the gospel, the scripture tells us, with our very lives. It's as if our lives are to be necklaces and bracelets and rings and earrings and all kinds of things to adorn the gospel, to, to make it sparkle and shine. And so he's saying, I want that to be true. You'll notice just as we come through uh, this letter, for instance, in chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul has joy in his prayers for them. But he says, because, because of your partnership in the gospel from uh, the first day until now, and then in Chapter 1, verse 12, he speaks of his own life and he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul's in prison. And what's, what's important to him is that the gospel is being advanced. That's his mind. That's how 
he is giving his life. And then in verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. He's saying, listen, even if, even if in some way my reputation is being disparaged, that's all right as long as Christ is being proclaimed, as long as the gospel is being preached. Uh, then in chapter 1 in verse uh, 27, he speaks of his own life. You remember he was having that little debate within himself whether it would be better to live or better to die. And he says, well, if I, if I die, that's gain for me to live as Christ. And what he meant by that, he explains in, in verse uh, 25. He says, convinced of this, that is, he's likely to live on. He says, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And so what he's interested in, even in the context of their lives, is that they progress in the faith, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so much so, this is, he spends most of chapter 3 explaining what that gospel really is, that it's a righteousness not inherent of ourselves, but comes through faith in Christ. It is from God. And then he speaks to them, too, of his concern for them, that they strive, as it says, side by side for the faith of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 28. And then he becomes very explicit in chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He says, he says Understand this about yourself, that you shine as a light in the world. Don't do anything, like grumbling or complaining, that will dim that light because what's important here isn't could I say this affectionately what's important here isn't you and me but the gospel of Christ that's what's important and what I think he would say to Euodia and Suntiki is what's important here is not the two of you but the gospel so be careful the way that you live your life because right now, this disagreement, it appears, in Philippi is somehow causing disparagement, causing people to look askance at the gospel. And so Paul's saying, whatever's going on between you isn't that important because what's important is that you have the same mind as Christ and agree in the Lord, submit to Him in humility. Because you see, the big question that always is being asked, and as we'll see in a minute, not only on earth, but in the heavenlies, the spiritual dimension. The question that's always being asked is this, is Christ really the wisdom of God? Because wisdom, you see, is knowing the right end and then knowing the right way to get there and then being smart enough, wise enough to pursue that with everything you've got. That's a wise person is a person who knows the best end out of all the ends that there is. And a wise person is one then that can cut through all the ways to get there and know the best way and who's wise enough, therefore, to pursue that goal with everything he's got. If you're struggling in an issue in life and you want to seek out someone to help you, find a wise person. That would be a person who's able to look over the landscape of the problem and see what's really important and see really where you must go. And then a wise person is also that person that can cut through all the nonsense and all the distractions and say, go in this direction. 
and then will encourage you on and give you everything that you need in order to get you there. That's wisdom. And so the question is, is Christ really the wisdom of God? And you realize that everything is looking upon the earth to answer that question. And you know who they're watching? Us. And I take that from Ephesians in chapter 3 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10. The Apostle writes this. It's only a couple of pages to your left. Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. See, the purpose of the church, that's us, to all believers in Christ, the purpose of the church is to reveal, the scripture says, to the rulers and authority and authorities in heavenly places, the manifold wisdom of God. And when it says the manifold wisdom of God, it means the many-folded wisdom of God. It means the infinite wisdom of God. You just keep sort of un- you know, uncovering it piece by piece by piece by piece. That's what we're to do. And he says that the rulers and authorities in heavenly places are watching us to see if Christ is really the wisdom of God. And when Paul refers to these rulers and authorities in heavenly places, he's first is saying they're in heavenly places, and you may say, well, where in the world is that? And, and that's, the, that's it, isn't it? It's, it's not necessarily of the earth, but in the spiritual dimension. He speaks to us that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. That is to say that it comes from heaven and it's secure because it's in heaven next to God. And we read in this very letter as well that Christ has been, has been exalted above every power and authority and is seated in heavenly places. But he also mentions rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And you know that famous passage in chapter 6 of, of, of Ephesians where he speaks of demons and Satan as rulers and authorities. And so you get this sense that, 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 that everything is watching us. Angels, good ones, and angels, bad ones, are watching to see what is the manifold wisdom of God, what is going to be revealed through us. And so you say, well, what is that wisdom of God? Well, Turn back a page to chapter 3, opening verses of chapter 3 of Ephesians to see what's been given to us, what's been revealed to us so that we'll know what can be revealed through us. Paul says, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Now a mystery, as we read through the New Testament, is that which was once unknown to us, but now revealed to us. Right? This mystery. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. It's about Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, it wasn't as clear as it is now. 
You read through the Old Testament, and, you, and now that we know Christ has come and we know who Christ is, we can read back into the Old Covenant and go, oh yes, there's Christ, now I get it. And we think, why didn't they? Because <laughs> they didn't have the advantage that we have of seeing now backwards, from the cross backwards. But it was there, but just in shadow form. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same bodies, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And you go, well, that's rather anticlimactic. <laughs> that just means that we can be saved too. But think of it from the perspective of angels and demons in heavenly places. I'll let you pick what you want to be. Don't ask the person sitting beside you. They may have a different opinion. But, but, but think about it from this spiritual perspective before the creation of the world. You're not omniscient. You're a spiritual being. And you realize before human beings were created, there, there was some sort of an event. It seemed to have taken place in which some of the angels followed this renegade against God. And if you're an angel, you're going, what's up with that? How could that be? And then God creates the earth and God creates human beings. And you see his glory in them. They're to reflect him. They're to live in such a way as reflects the very glory of God. And he, he says to them, I want you to be fruitful and multiply so that you can image me even more. You can glorify, reflect me even more by loving as I loved. And so it'll be a community of people in which to love. And you get the picture then that this one Satan comes in the form of this serpent. And you're watching. And you're wondering what's going to really happen here. And then the unthinkable happens. These ones, the very crown of God's creation, follow after this evil one. And they distrust the very word of God. And then for the first time you see all hell beginning to break loose and a curse comes. Relationships are twisted between men and women. God will put enmity between the seed of this woman and the serpent. No longer will the earth give up its fruit easily and gently, but now it will be very difficult and things you realize aren't as they were to be. But there's a promise. And the promise comes that this one from the seed of the woman will have his heel bruised, but he will crush the head of the serpent. And you're sitting there in all of heaven going, well, is that smart? <laughs> is that really going to solve this problem? Because now the people are banished from the presence of God. Physical death, spiritual death exists in the context of the lives of these people. And you say, well, what's going to solve this problem? And then it seems that things get worse. There's murder, there's immorality. You realize that the thoughts and inclinations of human beings are simply evil continuously. God brings a flood, but that doesn't solve the problem. He saves one family, but even after all of that is over, it appears that, that the descendants of Noah... Uh, have the same hearts as all the others. They begin to try to make a name for themselves. God has to scatter them in all kinds of ways. So it doesn't seem like things are getting fixed particularly. And then this man Abraham who becomes Abraham comes on the scene. God calls him. By faith he trusts. A promise is made. You begin to realize that somehow by faith in God... Things will be made right. Moses comes, covenant given to him, a law given to him, but it's still not clear. No one can really obey the commands of this law, the demands of this law, but in it are ways of atonement, a way of atonement so people can have relationship with God, but it doesn't. 
And then comes Christ, the very wisdom of God. Because you see, if we can say this reverently, God had a, had a huge problem on his hands. It doesn't seem huge to us because we're thinking about him, but it was a huge problem because on the one hand, he's holy and he simply cannot acquit the guilty. On the other hand, he's love and he has a love for those whom he has created. And that's the great dilemma. What wisdom, who is smart enough to unravel that, who knows the best end, the best way, and has the power to get there, that's the question. But you see, all of that comes together in Christ, the very wisdom of God. Because you see, in Christ comes the one who takes the penalty for sin. And he's one because he's God and because he's perfect. He's worth all of those for whom he would die. He's the very righteousness of God as well because it's his rightness, his right standing with his heavenly Father that now through faith he can give to us. And so the very holiness of God is satisfied and the very love of God is revealed all through Christ. What wisdom. But you see, not only does that wisdom, the very wisdom of Christ, the very action of Christ, the very work of Christ, reconcile us to God, but quite interestingly, it reconciles us to others, others as, as well. For instance, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, in verse 11, let me read this passage. I read this a few months ago, but just in case you forgot. Back when we were in chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians. But Ephesians, 1, Ephesians 2, verse 11, Therefore remember... That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, the very wisdom of God. It was his idea and it was his power. For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, it wasn't only to reconcile us to God, but it was also the cross, to reconcile us to each other so that God would have for himself throughout history one new person, not two or five or a bunch, one. One new person. That's why Romans 15, 6, and 7 can say that we're to praise him literally with one mouth. We're just a mouth, just, but just one mouth. Not one mouth, just one mouth, to praise him. That's what he wants. That's what he's doing. And so you see, unless that happens, unless the angels see that, they're going to think God's not very smart because he really hasn't accomplished in Christ what he set out to accomplish through Christ. And so you see, when we're all functioning as one, loving each other with the very mind of Christ, doesn't mean that we agree on everything because we're, we're not that smart. 
but it does mean that we have the same attitude towards each other that is humility and self-sacrificing love. When we're doing that, you see, then, then the worship in heaven gets turned up a notch and all the demons shudder. But when we're not, a great deal is at stake and you get the sense that the worship in heaven is turned down a notch and all the demons grow in confidence thinking maybe Christ wasn't the wisdom of God. And so you see Paul saying, you really do need to strive together in the Lord, agree together in the Lord for the sake of the gospel because so much is at stake. So much is at stake is I won't even talk about what's happening on the earth if you're not getting along. I'm going to talk about what's happening in heavenly places, even way far off places you'd never think to think about. But understand that all the time you're being watched and there's stuff happening all over creation bigger than you. When I do a wedding, I always try to say at least two things. Not that the couple's listening, but everybody else might be. I've already said it to the couple, so I figure they can... Sparkles in their eyes just sort of stand there. But everybody else I want to listen. I say two things. Number one is that on that event, in that moment in time, in that service of worship, when two people are being married, something's happening. This isn't just a ritual. Something's happening. God is joining the two of them together to be one. When they entered into that place, they were not husband and wife. When they leave, they will be. You need to understand, we need to understand, that when we come to faith in Christ, something has happened. Our hearts are changed. We're able to profess faith in Christ. We're reconciled to him and, whether we like it or not, we're reconciled to each other. The wall of hostility is down. Every Gentile knows he doesn't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian because all that was in the old covenant has now been fulfilled. And every Jew knows that he doesn't have to require the Gentiles to become Jewish in order to become a Christian because all in the law has been fulfilled. We're all now one in Christ, citizens of the same kingdom, members of the same temple, bricks in the same temple in which God will live. And the second thing that I tell people, couples in marriage, is that not only has something happened to join them together, but now their being together is bigger than just the two of them. Because now their calling is to reflect Christ in a way they've never reflected Christ before. Because now the husband is to love his wife the way Christ loves the church, thus to reveal the love of Christ for his church. And a woman is supposed to submit to her husband and thus reveal the love the church has for Christ. And so now in their marriage, what's happening is that they're being used by God to reveal something that's of great significance. So when Christians come into my office and say they want to be divorced, there's no biblical reason for that, I say no. Because your marriage is bigger than the two of you. Agree in the Lord. Agree that he's bigger than this. Agree that what's more important than your momentary, and momentary can be a long time, your momentary happiness is the gospel of Christ. You're being watched not only by your children, not only by the people in your neighborhood, but everything, everywhere, places you can't see. 
And the same is true for us. I marvel this week, as I always do when we do vacation Bible school, that we have so many people coming together in a fairly high activity, high stress, lots of tiredness by, well, by Monday afternoon. Because it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, look at all this stuff out here. That just happened. Those of you who were here last Sunday, you didn't see any of that stuff. It just happened. It just, I don't know, the elves. But, um, and all the people, 130, 40, 50 people, volunteers. But it's amazing to me that even in the midst of the tiredness and the stress, there really isn't any bickering going on. And the reason there isn't is because everybody knows why they're there. Nobody's there to get pats on the back, particularly, that we give them. Nobody's there to have their agenda filled. Everyone's there because the gospel is that important and Christ is worth it. Thus, he's the Lord. He's worth enough for us to cast aside all of our individual agendas and all of our desires for attention and all that sort of nonsense. And he's worth that. And if everybody's on the same page, everybody's on the same goal, you see, and that's the goal, then there's no reason. There's no reason for bickering. That doesn't mean everybody agreed on every song and every decoration and every Bible lesson and when it was presented and how. But all of that was always with the attitude of, all right, the most important thing is that the kids see Christ. That's what's so great about working with little kids. You feel so bad when you do really immature stuff around them. Like bicker about stupid little things. Because they look at you like, I just want some Kool-Aid. You know? You get all hot about this or that, and you notice they didn't even notice. It wasn't that big a deal to them. But all of that gets put underneath Christ and the value and the importance of the gospel. That's how Christians are called to agree. What's important? What's the main thing? One of the things we always talk about on staff, at least I do, because this is one of my favorite little illustrations. I've used it with you before, but I, I never marvel at the fact that one time in reading a biography of Vince Lombardi, the old coach of the Packers, that uh, every play in his playbook, from a quarterback sneak to a long post-pattern pass play, was diagrammed to go for a touchdown. Everyone. Somebody once asked him why, and he said, because that's the goal of every play. To make a touchdown. And what I want us to be thinking about as a church is that everything we do, all the way from setting up chairs to greeting people at the door to gluing macaroni uh, in the shape of a cross on a piece of paper for children, preaching, everything we do, we want to diagram all the way out to get people to heaven. That's what's really important to us. To persevere. To know Christ all the way there. And you know what? When we stand before Christ and we see people in glory, we're not going to be patting each other on the back. We're not going to be saying, that was a great little Bible lesson you shared when you... We're going to be worshiping Him. So let's just start now. All right? Let's start now. 
Because you see, when we're in the Lord, we all realize how we got in the Lord, don't we? I love the opening passages of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says these things about us. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the first thing you admit is that you haven't got anything with which to get there. In fact, what you have will not only not get you in, but it will keep you out. And so you see, the cool thing about being a Christian, and the great thing about coming together as a church, is the first thing that we have to admit is, the, is that all we have and all we can do is to earn our way into hell. And once you admit that, it's really, really hard then with a straight face to try to be too uppity. And the next one, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, once you've admitted your sin and, and, and really, really experienced the depths of it, and you've mourned over it, and you really own it, and you really know this is true of me, it's really hard to push your own agenda after that. And so the next one is blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Because you see, a meek person is not a weak person, but a meek person is a person with really good understanding of who he or she is in the very presence of God. And once you see yourself there in the presence of God, do you know how you see yourself on your face before him? And then he says, all right, now go act like that in front of the people. Take that very same posture of humility before me and go to your wife or your husband like that. Stand before your children or your parents like that. Stand before all those in the context of the life of the church like that. Have the same mind in the Lord. Now you see, when that occurs, all the angels say, Christ is the wisdom of God. And all the demons say, we're sunk. Because Christ is the wisdom of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this congregation. God, I thank you that you've enabled us. For not, we're not that old a church. But you have enabled us to keep the main thing the main thing and to keep Christ before us to keep us together. So I pray, Father, that you would continue to do that, that you would continue to enable us to be of the same mind, that Christ is the wisdom of God, that we are not, that Christ is the very glory of the Father, and that we're to worship him and to obey him and to submit to him. And there's nothing about us more important than him. So, Father, keep us on that same track. And if ever we get off, us, get off it, I pray that however you must, you straighten us out. For it is our heart's desire to bring glory to Christ and to him alone. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you uh, stand for the benediction, I want to introduce some who have uh, joined with us in the last couple of months and who are uh, here with us uh, this morning. And as, they, as, I, as I 
read their names, I'd ask that they just come and just stand right up here. And then after which I'll give them an opportunity to profess their faith in Christ through a few questions that we have for them. And then after that, uh, I'll have you stand and they stay here for the benediction. And after the benediction and, and our response to it, uh, rather than just sort of rushing out that way, I just invite you to rush this way and to just greet them just for a moment. So, um, Thomas and Angela Jacobson, uh, Curtis and Julie Leslie, and Brad and Heather Minnick, if you'll come. And if there's any other who expected to be introduced to this service and I have you for the next service, you come up too. These first three questions uh, provide opportunity to express very explicitly uh, faith in Christ. Um, and I like to do this for two reasons. Number one is often in the world when we profess our faith in Christ, it's not often met with smiling faces. And so this is a great opportunity to say, yes, I believe in Jesus and have people smile back. And second, for us to understand uh, and have the realization that when we identify ourselves with Christ, um, were received by the church and often not by the world. So this first question, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation except in his sovereign mercy? Do you? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners and you receive and depend upon him alone for your salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ. These last two questions uh, identify their faith and life, the life of the church, just as I've just been saying, that when God reconciles us to himself, he reconciles us to the people in his body, those he has saved and will save. And um, as we read through the scripture, he tells us to identify with the body of Christ. And so we stand as representatives of the church, as the whole body of Christ in this particular church and provide them and this opportunity to live consistent with Scripture as well. So this question, do you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service to God and its ministry to others? Do you? And do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, to the spiritual oversight of this church session, and do you promise to promote the unity, purity, and peace of the church? Do you? Stay right there. If you'll please stand for the benediction. As you do, uh, I want to remind you that elders will be available to pray in the office area. If you have a particular need, please take advantage of that. And also that the response uh, to the benediction is, Jesus is Lord, hallelujah, a common response uh, for us. But on this occasion, to understand, to mean I submit everything to him. He is supreme. And that implies, of course, then, that we'll be of the same mind with each other. Please receive this as God's benediction, not to him. He was able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.